You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go ahead and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a gentle, as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to see you. My name is Gary. I'm I'm one of uh, the pastors here at Park. Uh, I'm excited to get into this passage with you. I want to acknowledge it's a passage that's familiar uh, in a lot of ways. It's a passage that's known among the church to be speaking about how we go about uh, confrontation in a Christian community. Confrontation in our world can be challenging. It can be complex. It can be hard. Uh, All of us have different dispositions around confrontation. We have different histories around confrontation in our own family systems or even in the church. And uh, and passages like this can be helpful in cases and also can be really significantly misunderstood and misused in ways that can be really damaging. Uh, But we believe that the wisdom of Jesus is good for us, that his words give life and help bring life into the Christian community. So we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit will help us to understand what Jesus is saying and what he has for us Uh, this morning as we look at his word. So would you join me as we go before God together? Uh, Jesus, we are grateful uh, that you would love us, that you would pursue us even while we were wandering. We just sang so many songs about how you pursue us in tenderness. You sought us. Even when we've run away, you've continued to be faithful all of our lives. You've been faithful. You've been so, so good. Your goodness has run after us. Think about Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us, will pursue us all the days of our lives so that we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so I pray that you would help us today to hear and be attentive to the way your spirit wants to pursue each of us individually today, but also the way you've called us to be a part of the way you pursue one another in love in patience and kindness, with grace, with truth, for the sake of life, for the sake of joy, and for the sake of your kingdom. And so pray you pour out grace on us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. I'm curious if you were to describe how your family of origin handled co- conflict, what would kind of come into your mind? I expect the chuckles, because the chuckles are mostly a way we avoid the pain of that question. We're like, (laughs) I'd rather not think too much about how conflict was handled in my family. Maybe it's because uh, in your family of origin, uh, there was a lot of anger. Uh, Maybe there were things that were kind of covered up for a while, and then kind of explosions of anger. Maybe it was a household with a lot of animosity and tension. Or maybe it was a household where there wasn't anger. There was a pressure to maintain the peace, kind of what 
you know, Dr. King would call a negative peace, which is like status quo, like the absence of tension, not a positive peace of like the presence of righteousness and shalom and wholeness, but like keep the waters calm. There's a pressure. So you felt like maybe you had to walk around on, on eggshells because you didn't want to disrupt the peace. Uh, whatever it might be, some people are disposed, predisposed to kind of press into tension, not always in the most helpful ways. Some people are predisposed to run away from tension, not always in the most helpful ways. Some people, again, kind of adapt who they are to just kind of keep things kind of okay and keep calm in the waters. Whatever it might be, that dynamic that you grew up around shaped a lot of the way you interact still to this day. For most of us, a lot of the way we interact around conflict, around confrontation, is more connected to, in some way, what we experience through our formative years. And so often we've kind of absorbed certain patterns and practices from the family systems we grew up in, and we kind of transfer those on. Other times we're so hurt by those that we react against them, right? So if you felt like you lived in a home where nobody ever confronted anything that's wrong and you felt a lot of pain in your home, but it was never confronted, you might think, I'm never going to be that kind of a person. I'm always going to confront. Or if you grew up in a home that was explosive and felt like there was anger and volume, you might anything that sounds like confrontation or direct kind of like challenging of something you recoil from and you want everybody to be okay and, and be happy. And we kind of pendulum swing and absorb these practices and we transfer things from generation to generation in a number of different ways. This is kind of basic kind of human formation. It's the way we are shaped by the families that we grew up in. Now, in society also affects the way we think about these things as well. Uh, there's uh, recently an article that I thought was excellent by a guy named Jonathan Haidt, who uh, is a sociologist and anthropologist, um, really thoughtful uh, leader about different social dynamics that are at play in our current society. He recently wrote an article in The Atlantic called Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. Um, which can we just say amen? You know, if there's like something to amen, you know, it's like let's amen God's word and that sentence. Um, it's been uniquely stupid. What is happening in society? Uh, what is happening? There's so much tension in society, this inability to listen to one another, to hear one another, to have healthy confrontation, to actually uh, talk to each other, challenge ideas, listen to ideas, learn and grow, and offer thoughts to other people in ways that are constructive, that are loving, that are gentle, that are kind, that are humanizing. We live in a society where most of our kind of disagreements kind of, kind of degrade into these kind of vitriolic, polarized, tribal kind of like attacks of one another where I'm going to gather together the pe people that think like me and we're going to attack the other side and we do it in public settings like Facebook and social media and things like that. And essentially what Jonathan Haidt does, he just tracks the sort of cultural evolution of what brought us to this kind of moment and the way the echo chambers have been generated, a lot of the, even the psychological history of our nation. And so when you think about how do we de deal with conflict, you've got your family that you grew up in, then you've got culture around us, which, you know, isn't offering a lot of help. We think, is there any wisdom for how we're supposed to engage in conflict, confrontation, disagreement in this life? We say, well, maybe the church is good at it. How do we think the church is at it? You know, thumbs up? <laughs> no, let's be honest. It's, it's bad here too. We're not good at it either. We struggle knowing how to disagree, disagree, how to confront, how to share concerns in constructive, loving, and helpful ways. And Jesus, in this passage in, in Matthew 18, is expressing the Father's love for his people, not just kind of a generic, like, I love my people, but the Father's loving pursuit of his people, not just that we would be reconciled to God's love, that over time we'd be transformed to be the kind of people that reflect God's love in the way we live with him and with one another in this world. 
And so what we're going to see in Matthew 18 is a really beautiful passage, and specifically in Matthew 18, 15, and this passage we're looking at today, is how God has called us to be the hands and feet through which he is pursuing, confronting, and bringing people back to experience his life, his love, his joy, his wisdom, his instructions for life, and we have a role to play in this. And so what I want to do this morning is just kind of take some time and and back up and, and kind of walk into this passage in the context of Matthew 18 and spend some time trying to understand what is it Jesus has for us. Um, I want to acknowledge that some of the things that Jesus will teach us today run against the grain of our culture significantly and against the grain of many of our dispositions as human beings. Uh, There are among us people who kind of lean into confrontation uh, in healthy ways. But for many of us, we think about confrontation in really unhealthy ways that are kind of motivated more by anger or defensiveness or personal woundedness of some kind, or we run away from conflict. And this passage, I think, runs against the grain of a lot of the way we tend to approach relationships inside the body of Christ. And for me personally, when I find passages in God's word that are hard, I have learned and am learning to lean in. Because what it means is there might be wisdom here that is really important for us, that we maybe as the people of God desperately need to hear, desperately need to process and think, God, what do you want to teach us? Maybe there's a way that we're behaving. Maybe there's a way that we're interacting. Maybe there's a way that we're relating that is not the way of the kingdom. I think that's what Jesus wants to teach us here is the way that we as the new family of God are supposed to relate, especially with respect to confronting one another as we see each other wandering away from God's wisdom for life God's reign and God's goodness. And so uh, we're going to jump right into Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to just look at the first couple words here and draw a couple kind of, um, a couple notes about the passage in general, and then we'll walk through the process that Jesus lays out and talk about what that means for us here. So look with me, Matthew 18, verse 15. Jesus says to his disciples, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother or sister. Everywhere it's going to say brother here, it could be brother or sister. If you're brother or sister in the body of Christ, those who call themselves Christians, it's talking about the Christian community. It's not talking about if you see anything happening out in society, make sure you're the sin police in society and go tell all of society where they've all sinned and your neighbors and your coworkers. We're just looking around. If you see anybody sinning, go tell them. No. If you see your brother or sister in Christ, in sin. You have a role to play. So what I want to do is actually back up into the context of this passage and talk about the heart of God around this command and this instruction for us. All of Matthew chapter 18 is Jesus giving instructions to his people about what it means to follow him in this world. And so Jesus has come into the world to bring the reign of God, to bring the kingdom of God. And as he's bringing the kingdom of God, he's bringing people into his family, into this new family, not because of the good things they've done or the bad things, but when people turn from their way of life to trust in and to follow Jesus, they're in the kingdom. And he's saying, once you're in the kingdom, here's how how life in my kingdom is supposed to look. And some disciples say to Jesus, well, who's the greatest in the kingdom? What do you really value in your kingdom? And the way Jesus responds in the beginning of chapter 18 is that not first answering that question about who's the greatest, the first thing he answers is, what does it even mean to be in the kingdom? 
He says, unless you turn, and we talked about this last week, which is this word that kind of gets behind the idea of repentance, which is you're turning back to God, unless you turn and become like a child. And we talked about this as humility, dependence, need, coming empty-handed, and need of your father's love. Unless you turn from your kind of opposition to God's reign, unless you turn from saying, God, I don't need you, I don't trust your wisdom, I can make my own decisions, I can forge my own path, I'm the captain of my own destiny, I'm going to choose what's right and what's wrong for my own life, I'm going to go my own way. Again, choose your adventure, lots of different ways to run away from the love of God. Instead of running in that broad path, you reach that place of, turns out I'm not as wise as I thought, turns out my running from God, from his reign, from his love, from his goodness, brought destruction and pain into my life and into others, and I saw the end of that path, and I realized I'm just running towards destruction. When you turn and become like a child, and you come back to your father and say, I need your wisdom, I need your grace, I need your love, I need your healing, I want to follow you, I want to trust you, I want to obey you, I want to walk with you. When you turn and become like a child, you're in the kingdom. That's the way of the kingdom. It's the way of the kingdom. Jesus says that's greatness. When you become humble, dependent, needy, not saying all the things you've done, all the religious accomplishments, or all the things you've achieved or accumulated. When you turn and become like a child, you're in the kingdom. But it's not just the way into the kingdom, it's the way of the kingdom. It's humble dependence on the words of your creator, your king, your father, that I'm going to trust his word. I'm not going to declare my independence and my autonomy. I'm going to trust my father. I'm going to obey his wisdom. I'm going to obey his word. And I'm going to follow him. He says that's the path of the kingdom. Now, on that path, it's not just about being in relationship with God. It's about God transforming you to be who God designed you to be. And so being a Christian isn't, isn't only about reconciliation to God. It's about transformation of who you are to be who God designed you to be. It's not just about being justified or declared right before God. It's about being sanctified, about being transformed little by little, changed to be more and more like Jesus. This is the path of the kingdom that we're called to walk on. And as we're walking that path, in Matthew 18, Jesus says there are threats that are going to be tempting you to turn away from that, to turn back to doing it your own way, to turn back to your own wisdom, your own thoughts, your own kind of ambitions and agendas for life, and to turn away from the, the reign and the love and the authority and the goodness of your Father. And those threats are outside of us, people that tempt us with different ideas and thoughts to run away from the presence of God. Those threats are also within us, things in our own heart that tempt us to turn away. And that turning away is the Bible word for sin. This is this sin. So if you see your brother or sister sinning, if you see them in sin, if you see them turning away from the reign of God, you have a role to play. What we found in the passage last week is when God sees us straying away, remember Jesus compares the father to a shepherd. He says, if the 99 sheep are in the fold and they're running after the father and one sheep goes astray, doesn't the shepherd run after that one sheep, leaves the 99 there, runs after the one, puts that sheep on his shoulders and says, I found my lost sheep, I'm bringing him home, and he brings him back on the path and says, rejoicing. The father doesn't want a single one of his sheep to run towards destruction. He wants to pursue them and chase them down and bring, again, this repentance to come back and say, God, I, I, I turned away from you again, but I'm trusting in your mercy, your reign, your goodness. The question we're asking here is, how does God pursue his straying sheep? How does he do that? How does he run after us? If his mercy is running after us, if his goodness is running after us, if he's like a shepherd who seeks after the straying and lost sheep, how does he do it? It's through you and it's through me. It's through his spirit-filled people that we have a role to play in the way that God is pursuing his straying sheep. We have a part to play. 
Jesus has given us instructions, commands, saying, I want you to be the hands and feet and the voice of the Father's love towards one another when you find each other straying away. And before you kind of get into this mind of, well, we don't want to be judgmental, I'm just saying we're all the strayers, right? That old kind of uh, hymn, Come Thou Fount, which says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's all of us. We're so prone to wander. We're a community of people, all of us here at Park Church, that are prone to wander. Nobody's like that person that's just like, man, you, you like walked that line perfectly, like never wandered, never veered away. We're all stumbling, we're all falling, we're all being tempted and turning away. And God wants to pursue us and he wants us to be a part of that process. There's a book by a guy named John Mark Comer uh, who was a pastor in Portland area. It's called Live No Lies. And, uh, and when he's talking about the enemies of the soul, the things that are tempting you to turn away from the reign of God, he uses an old framework uh, that's biblical and kind of a part of church history about the three enemies of the soul are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And when he talks about the devil, he, I think, does a good job kind of encapsulating what the devil does. He's the deceiver. What the devil offers us as we're on this path is deceptive ideas. Like God says, this is my wisdom, this is my way, I want you to abide in me, come to me with humility, with love, with righteousness. And there's this deceiver that says, hey, that sounds good, but there's another way that's a little more enjoyable. God just doesn't want you to have joy. He's trying to hold something back from you. There's a different way of life, or that's old and antiquated, and these ideas are kind of like, you know, we've kind of grown past them. There's other ways of freedom to do what you want. You don't want to be stuck in this kind of like old, kind of crusty religious thing. We've transcended that and those ideas are deceptive right and they deceive people they sound good right the very nature of deception is that it doesn't feel like deception it feels like something's appealing to it and that's what the devil does he's offering these deceptive ideas God has wisdom for the way you think about generosity and there's deceptive ideas about the way you think about accumulation and accumulating for yourself God has wisdom for the way you think about your body and the way that you're supposed to honor God with your body, what you put into your body, the way you exercise your body, the way you exercise bodily sexual desires. God has wisdom for that. And the devil has, hey, it's your body, do whatever you want with it. It's your body, you have autonomy. God has wisdom for the way we think about marriage. God has wisdom for the way we think about vocation. Vocation as an expression of God's love for the society around us, a way to love and serve the common good in society. Again, deceptive ideas are like, but this is all about me and my advancement. All these ideas are kind of, tempting us to turn away from God's wisdom. Those deceptive ideas, the devil, those deceptive ideas play to our disordered desires, the flesh, bent stuff within our own heart, inclinations, proclivities, desires that are disordered, right? You have a desire to use sexuality. You have a desire, a human desire for sexuality that's God-given and good, good desire. But there's desires in us to turn away from God's design for that and to say, I'm going to care more about fulfilling my desire than about thinking about my desire under the reign of God's wisdom for sex to be a gift that's enjoyed inside the covenant of a marriage. Well, that feels kind of like tight and crusty and old. There's new ways. Well, who's telling us those new ways? Those are deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires. There's disordered desires around the way we think about our own kind of light rights and liberties and freedoms where we think it's about self-protection and self-preservation versus God's wisdom is about self-denial, self-sacrificial love. It's like, no, fight for yourself, promote yourself, defend yourself. All those are deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires. What happens when a lot of people buy into those deceptive ideas is they get normalized in society. We tell us the world. So it's the, the devil, the flesh, and the world. Deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that now get normalized in a world that says, no, we're all living this way. 
So when we, when we buy into the enemy's lies for life, we're not thinking we're buying into the enemy's lies because they're playing to things we desire, that we like, and it seems like everybody around us is doing the same thing. And that's sort of the recipe for turning away from God's reign, God's goodness, God's love, God's instructions, God's wisdom for life. It's disordered desires or deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that get normalized in a, in a sinful society, the world. And that's at play all the time. And God knows that there are threats to your soul. He knows that we're going to buy those ideas and we're going to listen to those voices and we're going to look at the people that are running a different way and we're going to feel, man, it's appealing. It seems like there's things I want and desire. And we're going to be tempted and we will wander. And when we wander, he's going to pursue us. How? He's going to pursue us through us. He's going to chase us down through his people. And that's what's happening in this passage, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If you see your brother or sister turning away from God's wisdom, buying into those deceptive ideas, leaning into the flesh, those disordered desires, running in the way of the world, running against the grain of God's kingdom and God's design for human flourishing, when you see that, you have a role to play. Now, one of the things in this passage is it says, if your brothers or sister, if your brother or sister sins against you, if you have an NIV or New American Standard uh, Bible, you will notice that the phrase against you is not in there. Uh, it's not in there. And, and the reason why is in the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament, that phrase wasn't included. And so this is a thing called textual criticism where your Bible, which is reliable and authoritative, is this kind of product of a lot of really faithful people that have worked, that have discovered old manuscripts, brought those together, and occasionally there are what are called variants where there's slight differences. And so there's a whole field of study called textual criticism where really intelligent people that pay attention to where manuscripts are found and when they were found and where they were written and kind of what kind of textual tradition they're a part of have worked hard to bring us our Bible today that you can trust and rely on. It's a really beautiful process that God has done to preserve his word, this ancient, beautiful kind of gift that he's given his people. But there are cases where different manuscripts say different things. And this case is one of them, that the oldest manuscripts don't include that phrase against you. So most modern scholars would agree that it wasn't, likely was not a part of Matthew's original gospel. That it was later scribes that added it for a number of different reasons. And part of the reason why I bring that up, which we've come across, if you've paid attention the last couple of weeks, some omitted verses and stuff like that, that's what's happening in all of those cases. Part of the reason why I bring it up specifically today is it does kind of affect the way you think about the passage. It says, if it says, if your brother or sister sins, then go and tell them their fault. If it says, if your brother or sister has sinned against you, then it's mostly about interpersonal conflict. And, and I, again, agree with most modern scholars that would say against you wasn't originally in there, which makes the heart of the passage in Jesus' instructions about God's heart for his people, not most significantly about an interpersonal conflict. It doesn't mean that interpersonal conflict is precluded from this instruction. It just means it's not limited to interpersonal conflict. It's not limited to a personal grievance that you have with somebody. It's not limited to some offense that was committed against you. That if you as a brother or sister in Christ see a friend that's wandering away from Jesus, you have a responsibility to extend the heart of God in the pursuit of that person, wanting them to stay faithful to Christ, his reign, his goodness, his wisdom for life. And so that's what's happening in this passage. Jesus is giving us instructions for how to be the hands and feet and the voice of God as he pursues us. And let me just pause for a minute to bring us back to, I think, the heart of this passage. If you want to follow Jesus, like really follow him, be an apprentice of Jesus, be a disciple of Jesus, not just like get to heaven when you die by praying a prayer when you're a kid, 
but believe that Jesus is Lord. He is King. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is the human being par excellence. He is the exact imprint of God's nature in human form. He is the one who shows us what human flourishing looks like. He not just has come to reconcile us to God, he's he's showing us what it means to be human. Like the Great Commission, we're supposed to help people be baptized into this covenant community, baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and we're supposed to teach people to obey, to observe, to follow the way of Jesus, everything he commanded us. If that's true, and if you want to follow Jesus, if you knew that you're trying to follow Jesus in a world where there are lies that are going to be permeating your life, there are disordered desires within you that are going to be tempting you to turn away, and there's a whole current of culture that's pushing in the opposite direction, and that you know to stay faithful to Jesus is, is the path to life and joy and flourishing, wouldn't you want, if you veer off course, God to pursue you? Wouldn't you want him to chase you down and remind you, no, you're buying into a lie. You're buying into a lie. You're, you're turning away from wisdom. You're, you're headed back towards the path of destruction. Wouldn't you want that? I would want that. I've needed that so many times in my life. And the way that God has designed for that to happen He can convict you of sin through his spirit when you sit here on a Sunday. That's real. He can bring conviction into your heart as you're laying in bed at night, but there are times those lies seep in a little deeper. They seep in a little deeper and we find ourselves living in patterns. We find ourselves suppressing the voice of God, pushing past the conviction. I don't want to. I don't want to turn to him again. I want to hang on to this thing in my life that I know is I know is hard and I know God doesn't like it, but I want to hang on to it. Well, what do you want to happen now? Do you want God to be like? All right, I tried. Wouldn't it it amazing mercy that he would say, I want my people to be a part of pursuing one another, caring for one another, helping each other stay faithful to me, to walk with me, to trust my reign and my wisdom for life. We want this to be true, even if it feels, again, against the grain of our dispositions or our cultural value set. So Jesus gives instructions for what this looks like. If your brother or sister sins against you, and here's the process he lies out, is not intended to be, a kind of rigid formula. It's intended to be divine principles for how God pursues his straying sheep, how God runs after his lost kids. It's divine principles that God has given us to think about how we're supposed to pursue one another, not a rigid formula that is applied in the same way in every situation or circumstance. So listen to what he says. If your brother or sister sins, go after them. Tell them his fault, where they've stumbled, where they've turned. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Notice the heart is to regain, to reconcile and restore your brother or sister to faithful following Jesus, to be a part of this family of God that's pursuing Jesus together. So when you see it, he says, go after them, you and that person alone, nobody else. I love that. doesn't say go post about it on Facebook. He doesn't say, go grab some friends and be like, can you believe what they did and start gossiping about him? I really noticed that that person's been doing this and this and this. And do, you know, do you notice what they're doing with their lifestyle? And do you see what they did over here and gossiping about it? Nor baptizing gossip in a prayer meeting. Just like you'd pray for my friend, you know? Uh, and then you kind of share all the things that your friend's struggling with. And we just need to pray for our friend and bless their hearts. And, you know, we just kind of Christianize gossip. It is so, gossip is so pervasive in Christianity, it like makes my stomach turn. We, we jump to talking to other people about our grievances or our concerns about others in ways that make us feel good, put down the other people, kind of multiply negative opinions about those people. 
And it is so far from the heart of God. It's more like the heart of the enemy, who's the accuser who wants to bring shame and condemnation into the community, than the heart of God who is gracious and pursues us with love and gentleness and compassion. Gossip has no place in the Christian community, none. None, it breaks the heart of Jesus, which is why he says, when you see somebody turning away, go to them alone. You and them, it honors their dignity, it gives you a chance to hear and to understand and to do it with a heart of bringing restoration, not bringing indictment or accusations against them. Now, I 100% understand that there are ways that this passage has been and can be significantly misunderstood and misapplied. There are scenarios where one-on-one contra- uh, uh, one confrontation is not the wisest step, especially in areas where there's an unhealthy power dynamic, especially in areas where there's a power dynamic that also includes sexual abuse, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, or physical abuse of some kind. Asking somebody and saying, well, you didn't go to them one-on-one, and saying like this person who's felt kind of hurt by somebody else who has some sort of power over them in some way or fashion or realm is entirely inappropriate and it misses the whole heart of this passage. Jesus' heart is to pursue his kids, not to find some way to discredit somebody who's brought a concern because they didn't do it the right way. There are times where somebody might confront you and they don't do it like this, and your job is not to be like, well, you didn't Matthew 18 me. You know, you didn't talk to me first, and therefore you're wrong. Well, what if they're not wrong? Okay, they, they didn't do this well. That's their responsibility, and we want to be people that do this well. But there are situations where doing it well is very much the wisest step is to talk to a trusted counselor or a pastor in our church to sit and say, hey, I see this thing and I'm concerned about how to do it because, because of what I've experienced in this dynamic before and I'm concerned that if I go back into that space, it won't be a healthy outcome for me or for them. And then a trusted counselor or advisor can walk you through that. That's real and in many cases, and in some cases that is a really important kind of caveat Now, Jesus is speaking generally about wisdom for us as we see in normal life, our brothers and sisters kind of veering away from God's wisdom for life. It's a general principle that is most often a doable thing. Doesn't mean like you need to go talk to somebody if it feels uncomfortable. Confrontation almost always feels uncomfortable. It's never like pleasant. Like nobody like signs up, hey, who wants to be a part of our confrontation team? You know, Um, too bad. Jesus said you're all in, you know, like... uh, You're all in. Everybody's in the confrontation team. But it's not pleasant. But the principle of one-on-one confrontation is really healthy. It actually honors the dignity of that person. So Jesus says, go to them, pursue them one-on-one. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. That's the goal. That's the goal. As you're pursuing them, they've wandered away from God's wisdom and life in this clear way. And you do it with humility, you do it with curiosity, you do it with love, you do it trying to understand like what they've gone through. You don't go with indictment or judgment or assumptions, you go with questions, but you go with courage. You wanna understand, you wanna care, you wanna listen. I've been confronted like this innumerable times. You're like, man, you sin a lot. Yes, I, I do. I am prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I wander in, in so many ways. Having brothers or sisters confront me with love, with courage, with direct kind of care is a gift to me. All of my best friends in the world, all of my best friends in the world are people who love me and have confronted me directly. Not gonna be a good friend of mine unless that's the case. <laughs> Just, I need that in my life. I like what I mean is I most value the friends who can say the hard things to me 
when they see something in my heart, they see an attitude, the way I'm talking about something, the way I'm kind of processing something, the way I'm defensive in an area, the way I kind of like have spoken about somebody. To have somebody confront me and say, I see something in your heart there that doesn't feel to me reflective of the heart of God. And what a gift that has been instrumental in my process of learning to follow Jesus and his wisdom for life. And I imagine the same is true for you. So we go one-on-one. Step two. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you to gang up on him. No. <laughs> You're like, wait a second. Told you it was countercultural. Now, that would be cultural, right? That would be like totally cultural. Like, let's get some people to gang up on people, right? All that's happening on, on social media is like ganging up on people together publicly. Um, it says, if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, so there's uh, a quote or an allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 19 in this passage where Jesus is referring back to a teaching in the Torah and God's instructions to the people of Israel about kind of how to handle kind of what are criminal cases, that when you're bringing confrontation against somebody, having other people that can be there to establish the veracity or the credibility of the charge is a helpful thing. He's not trying to shift into a courtroom dynamic. The heart of God pursuing his kids is still the governing heart of this whole passage. In this passage, the kind of bringing one or two others has a threefold motivation as best I can understand. One is to amplify the voice of God pursuing his straying kids, to amplify the voice of God. So think about it like this. In my in my house, at our house, we have a front yard. We have a basketball goal in our driveway. It's not a big front yard. There's a grassy area, and there's a tree right in the middle of the front yard. When our kids were younger, our rule was, you can play in the front yard. You can shoot hoops. You can do all that. Just don't go past that tree. Don't go past that tree. Why? We want you to live. Uh, like, we want you to to survive, you know, we want you to play, we want you to have fun, there's so much to do, we just want you to continue doing it alive on this half of the yard. We don't want you veering in, things get more dangerous over there, and so we have this instruction. Mom and dad, the authority figures in your life who love you and want you to flourish and enjoy life, have instructions for how we want you to do that. We want you to do it on this half of the lawn, okay, that's the instruction. It's like God has instructions for our flourishing life. When our kids would inevitably veer to the other side of that tree, we say, hey, hey, remember this half of the lawn, right? That's like one person going to you like, hey, remember, we're following Jesus together. Like, uh, I just see some stuff. I just have some questions, some concerns. Like, I want you to, like, let's process, let's pray. How can I support you? We want to follow Jesus together. Hey, we're going to be a part of this. If our kids keep wandering farther and, and wander persistently across that line where it seems like they're now disregarding our wisdom, disregarding the fact that we have wisdom that they might not have, what do we do? We amplify our voice. <laughs> uh, you get louder. Hey! Hey, kids! Too far. Too far. It's not safe. Come back. This half of the lawn. This half of the lawn. Come over here. We want you to play. We want you to have fun. We're not against you. not trying to crush you. Not, we don't hate you. We love you so much that we want you to enjoy life here where we've designed for you to enjoy life. And going with a couple people amplifies the voice, right? It, it kind of heightens the intensity a little bit. You're like, man, that's where it gets a little weird because it feels like you're ganging up on somebody. It doesn't have to feel like that. The goal isn't to gang up. Another piece of this isn't just to amplify the voice, but it brings broader perspective into the situation. Potentially, you have baggage that's coming to play in this interaction. 
Potentially, you've taken something that's a secondary issue or that's not clear, something within the scope of Christian liberty, and just because it's a conviction for you doesn't mean it needs to be a conviction for somebody else. And so by bringing a couple other people along, it helps speak into those blind spots in your own life. It helps you pay attention to your own tone, your own heart, especially when there's interpersonal conflict. It can be helpful mediation where people understand, like, oh, there was something that you brought to bear in that that you weren't even paying attention to yet. Or maybe they're trying to say something you're not understanding or hearing or valuing. But having a couple other people helps bring broader perspective into the situation. And ultimately, per the Deuteronomy 19 quote, it helps, if need be, establish the credibility of that confrontation if things do need to be amplified more if things do need to be amplified more, which is step three in the passage. Look at what Jesus says. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. Step three. If he refuses to listen to two or three, tell it to the church. So I've got a list of some people that I've noticed have been in sin for a little while. Just want to read it out. You know, uh, <laughs> I'm just kind of, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Don't worry. Um, like, what, what would that feel like? That doesn't feel good. You know, there's somebody in here, well, like, but, but Jesus said it. You know, it doesn't have to feel good. If he said it, do it. Is that what he meant? Is that what Jesus meant? Jesus meant, hey, if somebody continues in sin after a couple of people have done it, on a Sunday in front of a couple hundred people, you know, tell everybody what's going on. That's, that's not the context of what's happening. Again, in, in the original context, is Jesus speaking to his small group of followers who all knew one another. Even when Matthew writes this gospel and distributes it to churches around the known world in the Middle East and in Europe, right? When they're reading this, largely these are house church movements where everybody knew everybody. There is a relational context to this. And so you see a brother or sister in sin, and so you talk to them, right? And they don't listen, and you're concerned. And so you talk and you pray and ask somebody else, can you help support me. I'm trying to think about how to care for them well. We, what, what do you see in my own life or heart that might be affecting what I see? And so we're going to care and we sit down and say, hey, together we see you, we love you, we care about you. Here's some things we're trying to understand and just some concerns we have. Let's talk about it. We're for you. We want to be in your corner, right? And they're like, no, I'm going to, you guys are crazy. I was kind of buying this Jesus thing for a while, but now I'm just like, I, don't, I think I've grown past it. I think I've kind of transcended it. I'm kind of deconstructing my faith and kind of walking away from it. Now there's like a sense of concern and a growing sense of concern. And the idea was that you'd share it with this community, the whole community of people, all of whom knew that person, and say, hey, this person is, is beginning to persist in kind of running away from the reign of God, running away from his wisdom. They're not, they're not showing that heart of repentance and faith and we want to care for them and love them and pursue them as best we can in a relational context. So in our church family, historically, part of the way that's happened practically is sometimes maybe within a gospel community, somebody would confront a friend and they talk to that friend and maybe they notice something and they notice the friend continues in it. And so maybe they talk to a couple people within their gospel community and they're noticing this person continue in this practice that's destructive, destroying them and hurting other people. And then maybe they bring it to one of our pastoral team. We'd talk, we'd process, we'd pray, maybe we'd sit down, this is what we've done in the past, with people in that gospel community and with people connected to that person and say, hey, here's what we're seeing. We're going to be praying and pursuing and caring. I know a number of you have seen this and observed it. We're going to be praying and pursuing and caring and loving with a heart of gentleness, compassion, hope, trying to help this person stay faithful to Jesus. And we're going to pursue them for a season. That's what Jesus is aiming at. And that's the way we've historically done it in a church our size. Other people in other contexts have done it differently. Like I said, this isn't a rigid formula. It's principles for how Jesus wants us to participate in pursuing one another as we wander away. 
And then he says this, this final kind of heavy line. says this, And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Uh, Jesus isn't saying, like, cast them out and have nothing to do with them and look down on them and publicly shame them. He is saying if someone persists in a refusal to turn back to Jesus as a child, remember right at the beginning of this passage, to be in the kingdom is to turn and become like a child who's listening to your father's voice and trusting in your father's reign and trusting in your father's wisdom for life and pursuing your father. If you have ceased after one-on-one confrontation, after a couple people talking, after the church caring, you've said, I'm not going to listen to the Father's voice through his people. I'm not going to turn to him. I'm going to declare autonomy yet again. What Jesus is saying is, then that person's not a Christian. Not a Christian. Is it this like definitive indictment? Like not, never? It's just, no, if they're persisting in unbelief, then they're no longer exhibiting the telltale sign of what it means to be a Christian which is repentance and faith. Turn and believe. If they're unwilling to turn and believe after a season of persistent, amplified pursuit, then we're saying they're not a Christian. Now, if you have preset theological categories, you're like, wait, does that mean they lost their salvation? Does that mean they lost their salvation? I think often we take this idea of eternal security and we apply it in ways that the Bible just doesn't apply. So the Bible doesn't say if you pray a prayer when you're a child, to, to trust in Jesus and you follow him for a while and then you decide later to stop. No sweat, you're good because you were in before and you're always in once you're in. And actually over and over, in fact, the whole letter of First John is about what happens when people turn away from that. How do we show the love of God to people in that space? And this idea of if people are persisting in unbelief and lacking repentance, then we're, we're treating them or considering them to be not a Christian. That doesn't mean not loving them. Doesn't mean not caring about them. Doesn't that mean, doesn't mean not praying for them. It just means, okay, they're no longer exhibiting that. They're not a part of this church family. Doesn't mean I don't care about them as a human being or pray for them or pursue them still. But it does mean that there's something that's fundamentally changed. Jesus tells a whole parable about when the word of God goes out and it lands on different kinds of soil and different kinds of people here. And listen, a lot of people spring up right away and like, I'm gonna follow Jesus. I'm gonna trust in him. I'm gonna pursue him. And for some... The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke them out and they go back to the way of the world. I'm going to pursue my life my own way, the way my neighbors and co-workers and colleagues do. I'm going to go that way. They've fallen away. doesn't mean there's no evidence. It means that they've fallen away. For others, they start pursuing it and the suffering and the pain and the difficulties of life eventually make them say, I don't want Jesus anymore. I don't want his reign. If there's a God, he would be good and my life hasn't been good. And so I don't believe anymore. And I'm going to wander away. Right? There are all sorts of reasons why people would wander away. And this passage is showing us there's stuff within us and around us that contribute. How do we know who the true people of God are? It's the people that become like children. Maybe it's after a series of confrontation. Maybe it's after one. Maybe it's after months. Maybe it's after a couple years of people praying and pursuing. But eventually there's that heart of coming back to God as a father with humility. And I, I ran away for a long time and And like the prodigal son, like I ran out there and I spent that money and I took all those things and I tried to enjoy it and I tried to build my life apart from you and it just led me to pain and disaster and you come back and you're coming back to the father and you're like, is he going to accept me? How are the Christians going to feel about me? Are they going to shame me? 
What's God's heart towards those people? He runs after them and throws a party and invites everybody in. My child who ran away is back home. Welcome to the community of grace. What we ought to be is a community that's not like, oh my gosh, somebody sinned. It's like, oh, we all sin all the time. We all veer away. What an incredible thing that God gives us grace upon grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. But the mercy and the grace of God is not a reason to continue to run. It is his kindness that leads us to return, to repent and come again, to be a community where we're constantly confronting each other with love and kindness and care and constantly welcoming people back in and being welcomed back in. Man, what a, what a humble community that would create. What a community of grace where none of us feel like I belong here and somebody else doesn't, but we all feel like, man, I've been loved, confronted, and forgiven again and again and again. How many times would we forgive somebody? Well, that's like the next logical question in this passage, and Luke's going to preach on it next week. Seven times? Do we welcome people back in seven times? Jesus like, try 77. Like, keep on forever. It's the, it's the nature of my community. Welcome people back in with grace. But if they persist in unbelief, and they persist in an unrepentant heart, then you consider them to be not a Christian and you aren't obligated to continue to pursue them. It's almost like a a freedom to say, we pursued, we chased, that took a year of my life praying and caring and praying and caring and praying and caring and pursuing in hard conversation and I have permission from the King of Kings to let it go and to follow Jesus with his people. I have permission to let it go and to trust that God can work even as they experience life out there, that maybe even the complexity and the challenges of life apart from the family of God might lead them ultimately to restoration. It's just not my job to keep running, to keep pursuing. So that's Jesus' instruction. In the next few verses, what he does is unpack that we as his people in this specific context have the authority of God to do this, we have the power of God at work among us to do this, and we have the presence of God with us to do this. When he talks about the binding and loosing, that we have the power as the community of God to bind and loose, it's talking about this authority we have to actually see when people are turning away and to feel the spirit of God within us, saying, man, there's something here that I want to care about. We have God's authority. There's power at work. God's power to run after his straying sheep, his lost children, is at work within us when we gather together. I was talking about this passage with my son. We were like reading it when it talks about in verse 19, it says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. It's like, man, how broad is that? You know, it's like, what should we pray for right now? My son had all these ideas of things like, hey, if we agree together and pray, like maybe God will do this. And we tried some things out. Uh, They haven't happened yet, uh, but I'll let you know. In the context, it's saying when, when you're there and you're pursuing this person, a couple of you together, the power of God is at work there. It's the love of God through his people pursuing and this is how he works. It might feel countercultural. It might feel uncomfortable. It is the way God is choosing to pursue his straying sheep. I need you in this community, when you see me turning from the way of Jesus, his wisdom, his love, and something I say and something I do and my attitude, my disposition, I need you to tell me. If I don't listen to somebody, I need a couple people to tell me. You need people in your gospel community, spouses, friends. We need each other. We need this. God's authority is for us and his power is at work in us and his presence is here among us as we gather together to be his hands and feet and voice as he pursues his kids. God does not want one single one of his children to perish. He does not want a single sheep to go astray. Not one. 
And he has said, in my heart, to care for my sheep, I'm asking and instructing and commanding my people to be a part of this process, to be a part of it, because of how much he loves us and wants us to enjoy the flourishing life that awaits for us as people in his kingdom and his family. It's a powerful passage. It's a powerful invitation. And it brings us to these kind of principles that I think I just want to rifle through really quickly. One is when we do this, we must do it with love, not with judgmentalism. We must do it with love, not with judgmentalism. That the heart of God in this whole passage is a love for his kids. The whole passage is a love for his kids. Everywhere it talks about confrontation. Places like Galatians chapter 6. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness, this love, this compassion. With love, not with judgmentalism. Second, with humility, not with self-righteousness. Jesus gives instructions about before you confront somebody, first take a look and see if there's any big old logs in your eye. In fact, he doesn't say take a look. He says, first remove the log from your eye. He presupposes there's a big log in your eye. Pay attention to that real hard. If you think, not in my eye, like that's a big log in your eye. You know, um, there's a big log in your eye. And it's going to be hard for you to see clearly and come with the heart of God to your friend and address the speck that's in their eye if you haven't first worked really hard to pay attention to the brokenness that you carry in, in life. The whole next passage is going to be about that. We, the debt we've been forgiven, the grace God shows to us is so significant that if you don't understand how gracious he has been to us, how merciful he has been to me, if I don't let that seep in, then I come into situations with self-righteousness, anger, frustration, that has no part in confrontation. So first pay attention to the log in your own eye. I think about in the midst of marriage conflict, when I slow down enough to pay attention to God, what am I bringing into this scenario? Maybe I go into those moments feeling like I want to defend myself and protect myself. I feel misunderstood and misheard or miss whatever. And I feel like frustrated. I feel like I'm in the right and my wife's in the wrong. And, and I get space and I pray, God, is there a log in my eye? Do you know what? 100% of the time, there's a big log in my eye. 100% of the time. That just changes. If I can return into that space where there's been conflict and, and pay attention most, to where areas where I haven't reflected the heart of God, the love of God, where I've been defensive, protective. If I can come in with no weapons, I put weapons down, I've dropped them. Like what that does, that interaction, that conversation just changes. Changes in the same way when we pursue one another in the church. We have to come with humility. And then we want to come with curiosity, not with assumptions, with questions. A word that uh, I've been trying to learn more how to use and how to think about, or this phrase is, I wonder. I wonder why, right? You see somebody with an alcohol problem of some sort. They seem to be coming home to your house uh, intoxicated multiple times. And instead of like going, and hey, I'm confronting you about your alcohol consumption and your habits there, what does it mean to say, hey, what's going, what's going on in your life? How are you doing? I think in your mind, I wonder. I wonder what's going on that's leading to that. It doesn't mean it's an excuse but it helps you come with a care for fundamental underlying issues. Often, in fact, almost always, behavioral issues underneath them are often heart-level, deeper pain, struggles, difficulties, and desires. When you come with a kind of curiosity to try to understand what's going on, man, it just, it kind of softens that experience to feel cared for and heard and valued and loved in different ways. So to come with curiosity. And then to come, again, with prayerful trust over control. And I think this is a significant one where we come into situations like this with the dependence that God is with us, God is among us, and we need him. 
We need him to be participating. We don't want to try and control or manipulate or force. We want to be the hands and feet of God as he invites people again and again and again to return to him, to his wisdom, his love, and his way of life. And this takes courage. It takes courage. I, I, my disposition is to, is to shy away from confrontation. It's my disposition. Some of you have a different disposition. I'm grateful. Grateful that there are people that lean into it more kind of naturally. Uh, my disp- disposition is to lean away from it. And it takes courage where I care more about God's heart for this person than I do about how they might feel about me if this doesn't go well. And there are times where I've participated in conversations like this, many, many, that have been really beautiful and restorative. And there are times where I've pursued, participated in conversations like this that have been incredibly painful, that have meant the end of friendships, like things that grieve and break my heart. It's hard. But God has instructed us to participate in this because of his heart. He is a God who sent his son into the world to pursue us while we had gone astray. All of we, like sheep, had gone astray. We had turned every single one of us to his own way. And the Lord sent Jesus into this world to come in and take upon himself the iniquity of us all. That in love he pursued us, in love he laid down his life for us, and in love he sent us his spirit to participate in what he's doing, that we'd be a people that follow him faithfully to the end. Let's pray that he would do that among us. Jesus, we come right now and we need you. We need your grace and we need your healing. We need your care and your help. Would you help us to be people who follow you faithfully, who listen to your voice when you're bringing conviction into our own heart, whether that's just through your spirit, time in your word, or time on a Sunday, or time in a community, whether that's through a brother or sister in Christ that confronts us. Help us to be the the type of people that would be receptive, that would feel your love for us when you confront us and convict us. And help us to be quick to repent. And then would you help us to be those who with humility and love can extend your heart be the hands and feet and the voice of God as you pursue others in our community, that we would be faithful to participate in ways that honor and reflect your character, your goodness, your mercy, your grace, but also your truth, your wisdom, your righteousness. So would you help us, King Jesus, by the power of your spirit, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Heart Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Heart Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at partchurch.org. Peace and love.